All right, technology. It's great when it works well. And it drives you crazy when it doesn't. <laughs> okay, um, welcome. It's good to be here. It's good to be with you. I know many of you from years past. Some of you I've known uh, for well over 40 years. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. I would like to thank John for allowing me to speak on this topic. I don't know that I would have chosen it by myself, uh, but when you're handed a football and you have 10 yards in front of you, you run for daylight and leave the results to the Lord. Um, as always, I'm grateful, very grateful to my wife. Uh, very tangibly, she encouraged me to um, try it out, talk it through. Talking it through Friday night, I realized that it was not yet where it needed to be. Uh, and I also realized that we would need and ideally would have some visual uh, help with it. Talked to my son yesterday after I spent most of the morning and into the early afternoon preparing slides. Uh, and Mike wisely counseled me, Dad, you're going to get bogged down at the beginning part. Uh, you really want to streamline it and move through that uh, to the part where you're really wanting to focus. Uh, and so I listened to my son. Uh, our focus today is where do we go from here? You saw the movie near the end of the movie. Phil Johnson is making the comment. He says you have to be ready. The next time is coming. The next time is coming. Well, what's that going to look like? How do we prepare for that? Uh, if you were in the first hour listening to Abner, Abner was preaching from Daniel 7, 14, where he talks about the moment that we are all waiting for. And to a great degree, that is the moment we are waiting for, when Christ is revealed and manifested in all of his glory. What are we going to do during the interim? We're going to be in Daniel as well, a few chapters later. Uh, and if the passage in 714 is the moment we're waiting for, Daniel 11.32 is a passage that tells us how we're going to conduct ourselves while we are waiting. Uh, I listed out a number of the points that uh, I think we learned from or should have learned from uh, the pandemic and from our ordeal in going through that. But I don't want to list those for you per se. I want your faith to be from the Word of God. And the passage that we're going to look at this morning uh, really focuses on and lists the great majority of those points are implicit as a result of that. So we're going again. Turn your Bible to Daniel 11.32. The context, it's approximately 168 B.C. Uh, Israel is under the control 
Israel is under the control of a corrupt government. It is the king of the north. He is described in scripture as an extremely vile person. He is probably the most vile man in all of scripture. Uh, as Abner pointed out earlier this morning, he really is a type of the Antichrist. He is responsible for the abomination of desolation that we read about in Matthew uh, 24, verse 15. An idol is erected in the temple. A pig is sacrificed on the temple. Broth from its carcass is splashed on people of God. Uh, incredible desecration that took place. This is in the part of a conflict between Antiochus Epiphanes, who was the king of Syria, uh, and the king of Egypt. Again, this is approximately 168 B.C. Uh, not an awful lot different than what we experience at, time, uh, at times where there is a corrupt government. Uh, in some ways, this is a prototype of every corrupt government that has occurred since the beginning of time and will occur uh, until the end of time. Uh, and as you see on the screen in front of you, this is not an exhaustive exposition of Daniel chapter 11. We are instead focusing on one key verse. 11.32 I had first come across this verse probably 40 years ago as I was reading through J.I. Packer's classic book titled Knowing God. Uh, chapter 2 of that, he comments on this verse, he describes as how it will affect the conduct of the believer. Uh, in mid-May 2020, as we had been in the pandemic for approximately two months at the time, remember uh, the phrase, Two weeks to flatten the curve. <laughs> it became two years and counting. And we really did not come out of that until earlier this year. This verse weighed in on my mind. It gripped me. It gripped me then. In many ways, it was behind much of my thought uh, during that whole period of time. Daniel 11.32 by smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. The he in that context is Antiochus Epiphanes. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Let's read it again. This is how we live while we are waiting for that moment that Abner described this morning when Christ is revealed and glorified. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly towards the covenant, but the people who know their God will display strength and take action. There are five parts to this. Uh, at my son's encouragement, uh, I am shortening the time that I was going to put into the first two we will spend most of our time on the last three. First of all, implicitly, there is a call to discernment. A call to discernment. Secondly, a call to stand firm. 
a call to stand firm. Third, there is a call to know our God. Fourth, there is a call to strength. A call to strength. We're going to talk about what that looks like. Finally, there is a call to action. Now, you're probably, if you're like most of us, including myself, wanting to know, okay, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Right? Very understandable. But you have to take the time to develop the mindset first. And once you've developed the mindset, the course of action tends to flow as a matter of course. A call to discernment. Deception is rampant. Lies were being told. Uh, Daniel tells us in Daniel 11 that the king of the north, Antiochus Epiphanes, met over the bargaining table with the king of the south. Both of them, and they knew it, were telling lies. Uh, They were acting deceptively. Honesty was not involved in the slightest. Deception is rampant, so we're emphasizing a call for discernment during a day and age of deception. Again, remember, we're going to have two weeks to flatten the curve. (laughs) It says he uses smooth words, by smooth words. This word, halakha, is actually used only once in all of Scripture. Uh, It is a feminine variation, which is interesting that they point that out, of a word that is used frequently, flattery. Proverbs 29.5, he who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his feet. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes was using seductive, fine-sounding flattery uh, to try to turn the people of God, to get the people of God to leave their commitment to him, their commitment to the covenant. He was using fine promises You read through that and you can automatically translate that in your own thinking to false promises. We're going to solve it. Everything's going to be taken care of. We just need everybody to stay home from work. All right. I think I'm in need of a little bit of help. The godly, however, see through the smooth words. They see through the false promises and the smiling faces. Those of you that know me well will know that one of my favorite Motown songs, 1972, was Smiling Faces. Some of you are old enough to remember that. Beware of the pat on the back, it just might hold you back. Beware of the handshake that hides the snake. There is always, always, always a call for discernment. How are we doing? Right there, okay. A call for discernment. All 
Let's just keep on rolling. If he gets it connected, we'll go forward. A call for discernment, and that is followed by a call to stand firm. There has been widespread betrayal of God and of the covenant. Antiochus Epiphanes, it says, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly towards the covenant. Now there's an interesting, the terms that are used there are very interesting. He says he turns to godlessness. That phrase ultimately means the individual is defiled. He is polluted, contaminated. Man who is created in the image of God becomes defiled by transgressions. Some of you may recall that during the time of the pandemic in one country in the world, people were in an effort to head off COVID, were pouring cow urine on themselves and smearing cow dung on them. I don't know that I could ever come up with a more graphic illustration of how that defiles an individual. And we saw that. You saw that on TV. You saw that on the the Internet. He will turn to godlessness, and they will act wickedly. They act in a manner that the text indicates and describes as being guilty and condemned. There is widespread betrayal, widespread betrayal of the people of God. In fact, one of the things that sets in motion the action is betrayal of the covenant by some people who should have known better and who actually helped participate. They were God's people by ethnic background, but they were not God's people by conduct. And they helped carry out the desecration Lesson to be learned from that, there will always be a certain potential for betrayal. If you saw the movie, you remember there was a scene where they showed you a river. There was a rock in the middle of it. Pastors would preach from the middle of the rock in the middle of the river. Why? Because betrayal, they knew, was a real possibility. Pastors would preach behind a screen or with men standing in front of them because they knew betrayal was a possibility. Money would be offered uh, by the British Crown when the Scottish Covenanters were meeting illegally underground, and people would take that bribe. This has always been, and it always will be, a reality for churches meeting in the wake of the fall, meeting in the wake of COVID-19. In contrast, in contrast, the godly stand firm. They do not buckle. They do not waver. Their conviction continues. There may be momentary lapses, and we've seen that from time to time in the history of the church, particularly when the church goes underground. We all remember Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane and Peter in Antioch.
All right, let's hope it continues. Okay. A call to stand firm. And then it goes on to say, but the people who know their God, the people who know their God. This phrase has tended to become somewhat trivialized in the evangelical church over the last several years. There was a song, I uh, heard it once at a funeral, if you know the Lord. Uh, and we don't take it seriously, but there is a tremendous significance in the phrase that Daniel uses. This is a knowledge a knowledge of God that is objective, it is intellectual, it is governed, it is bound, it is defined by the written word of God. And yet we would be mistaken if we assume that that is the entirety of it. The phrase that is used here, uh, the term that is used for knowing God is a term that also has been used elsewhere in Scripture uh, to describe the intimacy between a man and his wife. So there is a very intimate and subjective sense to it as well. Uh, we in the non-charismatic portion of the church can lose sight of the fact that there is a legitimate subjective sense of God's leading. The thing is, we always have to keep in mind that it is always, always, always to be subject to the written word of God. The people who know their God have a deep sense of God's honor, of God's holiness. You heard the reference this morning to Isaiah chapter 6. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. What were the angels singing? What were they singing? Holy, holy, holy. They have a deep sense of God's holiness. Growing out of that, out of his holiness, there is a deep sense of God's justice and of his expectation, his sovereign control over government. What's this have to do with us? They know, the people who know their God, know when God's purposes for government are not being followed. They know what God's purposes for government are, to commend that which is good, to punish that which is evil. You'll read elsewhere in Scripture, uh, you'll find, believe it or not, that sometimes government is to help with the necessities of life. Government is to help maintain peace and public order so that people without hindrance can experience and enjoy an intimate relationship with God. They also know, the people who know their God, know of some of the abuses of God's purposes for government that have occurred. You don't have to read very far uh, in the Bible before you come across this. Cain forms the first city, Genesis 4. We're told that it becomes something of a dictatorship, a tyranny. Nimrod, Genesis 10 through 11, Nimrod is the one who spearheads the construction of the Tower of Babel. Josephus tells us that he does so by causing the social order to become a tyranny, a dictatorship. Same thing. Jezebel and Ahab, they subvert the purposes of God. They use it to kill infants, to initiate and take over the worship of Israel turning it from that of Yahweh 
to that of Baal, Molech. They use it to kill. We don't know the full number of the prophets of God, but at one point in time, uh, and we have every reason to believe that uh, Elijah was accurate when he said, I am the only prophet of God that is left. Now God tells him, I still have 7,000 people left who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Their daughter, Athaliah, becomes the queen of Judah. Attempts to wipe out the messianic line, undoubtedly at the instigation and direction of demons. And more and more down through history. The Roman Empire tried to establish in the minds of Christians that Caesar was Lord. We refused. When the Reformation hit, the French government tried to wipe out the Huguenots, the French Protestants. Just this last week was the anniversary of St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. At least 30,000 people were killed. The rivers, the lakes, the streets of France ran red with the blood of people killed only because that they had trusted in Christ through faith alone. Germany, mid-1930s, long before World War II started, there was a tremendous battle being fought in Germany for the authority of Scripture, for the authority of Christ over his church. All too often we tend to lose sight of the fact, but tremendous courage is demonstrated by the German confessing church. The last 70 years in China, we have seen the Chinese communist government attempt to pervert and to co-opt the church. The Three Self Church was created with the uh, assistance of an individual who had engaged in betrayal, a man by the name of Y.T. Wu. Uh, it has been resisted firmly and emphatically since then uh, by the Chinese house church movement. Uh, at the outset, the leading individual was a man by the name of Wang Mingdao. Mingdao spent many years in prison because he refused to bend the knee to the Chinese Communist government. In late 2018, and it's interesting, we sang the song we did at the beginning, uh, What is Our Only Hope in Life and Death? When his church was shut down, people left the church pastored by Wang Yi reciting that portion of the Heidelberg Confession. Wang Yi has written two documents. They're available online. Uh, one is the 95 Theses of the Chinese uh, House Church Movement. One is also his declaration. He writes a declaration in late 2018, realizing he was going to be imprisoned. Uh, and in fact, he was. He was convicted and sentenced to nine years in 2019. Uh, he is somewhere in China right now. I pray for him frequently, and I would ask and encourage each of you to do the same thing. Because we know that, and this again grows out of our knowledge of God, we are not taken by surprise. One thing that should come with you from watching the movie is don't be surprised if the government 
oversteps if the government acts in a manner contrary to the freedom of religion that we've come to expect, if the government acts in a manner that is profane and contrary to the gospel. The people who know their God read. They read. One of the things that was so providential is that uh, when COVID hit and we were having to go through this, we had a senior pastor who God had prompted years ago to read a history of the Spanish flu epidemic that hit the United States, hit the world uh, in the early part of the 20th century. You talk about sovereign preparation. The people who know their God read. Uh, It's a cliche, but it's very true. Readers lead and leaders read. We saw when we were wrestling with the question of what to do, the importance of going back and reading the works of the Reformers. You saw in the movie, uh, one of our pastors was reading through Martin Lloyd-Jones' commentary on Romans chapter 13. That was only the tip of an iceberg. We were pulling books off of the shelf. My wife always gets nervous when I pull John Knox off, uh, (laughs) due in part to the reaction to a lesson I taught in Joy and Rares back in 1989. Um, We read scripture and theology. We read history and biography. And we read government and culture. And I can tell you this. The guys who were serving as elders who were most comfortable with this process and who'd had the most experience with it were the guys who were most comfortable with coming to a conclusion as to what we needed to do at this particular point in time. If you are not readers, change that and develop that habit now. Regularly read through Uh, biographies of great Christian leaders in the past, men who have been involved with government, men who have challenged the government. Read through the theology of government. I would recommend strongly getting a copy of the uh, book that I referred to earlier. It's sold out in the bookstore. You can get it on Amazon, and that is Martin Lloyd-Jones' commentary on Romans chapter 13. Readers lead, and leaders will read. As we read this, we are discerning, we sift through for truth, we realize that all truth, where we find it, is ultimately God's truth. Borrowing a word from 1 Peter 1.13, we have our minds girded, our minds prepared for action. By the way, just uh, parenthetically, I don't know how uh, Joint Heirs uh, has, has their Bible studies running or operating. It is extremely important in how we conduct this church's Bible studies that they are studies that prepare people to think, that cause them to be able to use their minds, to be able to express the reason and a defense for the hope that they have within them. Gird your minds for action. As we saw in the movie at the end, we've got to be prepared for the next time that we 
face this. These things are interrelated because we know our God. We will stand firm. Because we know our God, we see things from his perspective, we will become discerning. And because we know our God, we will display strength. Now, the word that is used there is the term hazak. It refers to a strength of character. We become resolute, hardened, courageous, firm. There is another word for strength that you may be familiar with. It has a slightly different connotation. Isaiah 40, verse 31. They that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. The word that is used there, koah, refers primarily to power. God also provides that. The people who know their God will display strength. And one of the interesting illustrations of that, you see on the screen, uh, Calvin's Institutes. One of the best things you can take the time to read. Any time spent reading the Institutes is not wasted. They were referred to as the iron rations. The iron rations of the Reformation. This is what kept men going during times of severe persecution. They display strength that grows out of their intimate, it grows out of their objective knowledge of God. Now there's an interesting aspect to this strength. At one and the same time, we acquire it actively and we acquire it passively. Okay? David is on the verge of a mutiny, 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6. Uh, some of the rival tribes have literally kidnapped and stolen all of the women and children of his men. Uh, they are ready to take out their anger on him. And it says, David strengthened himself in the Lord. David strengthened himself. And he uses the same word. How do you strengthen yourself in the Lord? You remind yourself of who he is. You remind yourself of what he has done. You remind himself of the sovereign control he has over your life. You remind yourself of the fact that he has prepared good works. Ephesians 2.10 tells us for you to walk in and to perform. David strengthened himself in the Lord. And at the same time, we also acquire this sometimes in a somewhat more passive manner. Uh, one chapter earlier, as you near the end of it, Daniel himself is weakened to the point of being almost speechless. He has been seeing a series of visions. He is encountering very close range, uh, most likely uh, the pre-incarnate Christ himself. And it says at one point, he says, I am so weak, I can hardly talk. I am so exhausted, I can hardly speak. And Christ spoke to him, touched him, and all of a sudden he was strengthened. Those same words are used. Hebrews, Hebrews 11.34, that familiar uh, hall of fame of faith, in weakness or from weakness, they were made strong. So we let God strengthen us and we strengthen ourselves in him. A very important part of strength 
is guarding against our own propensity to weakness. Let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Peter didn't expect he was going to betray Christ. He'd been warned. He should have known. But he succumbed to weakness, and he denied him three times. He did the same thing again in Antioch. We read that in Galatians chapter 2, where he acted in a manner that contravened, equivocated with the truth of the gospel. Paul rebuked him publicly. Peter's not the only man. Down through history, Thomas Cranmer, one of the great English reformers, recanted and then recanted his recantation. Uh, Wang Ming Dao did the same thing, realized what he'd done when they released him from prison, repented, turned around and walked back in and said, here I am again. He refused to leave until his sentence had been lived out. Guard against the propensity to weakness. Now, to the extent possible, one of the greatest football coaches uh, of our time, a man by the name of St. Vincent Lombardi. <laughs> you like that. Made the comment, he says, fatigue makes cowards of us all. We try to get our sleep. We try to eat properly. We try to take care of the body. Get some exercise when we're able. But ultimately, we have to also remember, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, God's power is sometimes manifested in our weakness. The people who know their God will display strength. Now, because they have this strength, because they know God, because they have remained firm, because they are discerning, the next thing that we see here will occur. They will take action. They will take action. Now, the word that is used there implies making, accomplishing. There is an element of creativity. And just let me state as an aside, uh, one of the things that was most remarkable about the early days of the pandemic was the creativity that took place here at Grace Church. Uh, you have in your fellowship group an individual uh, who, if he chose to do so, probably could make a career at this point in time uh, living out and acting the role of Ranger Joe. <laughs> creativity, even in that. We also saw people learning to use Zoom to conduct worship services. There was preaching going on. Guys were preaching out of their dens, out of their offices, uh, to churches meeting around the world during that particular period of time. Creativity should be a hallmark of the action that we take. These are actions that grow out of conviction. Actions that grow out of conviction. The importance of conviction can never be overstated, and it is often overlooked. I am convicted, I am convinced of the truth of what I read in the Word of God. It becomes a conviction that will not let me go, that compels action. It is consistent with discernment. I discern the difference between truth and error. I discern the difference between integrity and the lack of integrity. 
and I go forward with action. Now, the scripture does not define minutely every action that is supposed to be taken by the people who know their God and are taking action during these times. So it's important to always keep in mind certain guidelines. First of all, we are not governed by fear. 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of cowardice, a spirit of fear, but of discipline, of a sound mind, of power. The action that we take will always be subject to the truth of Scripture. Now, there's a subtle danger here. When we were going through the return to church, we had people uh, coming, and they were coming precisely and in some cases exclusively because of the fact that we took a position that was bucking the authority and power of the governor. I remember being at a family dinner when uh, a relative of mine made the statement, MacArthur, he's my guy. He's not a believer, he makes no claim to. But MacArthur was his guy because of the action we were taking. Our action as believers is not dictated by any 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 party's political tradition or ideology okay don't ever lose sight of that the action we take needs to be well thought out it needs to be practical we almost returned to church in the late may and god in his sovereignty put the brakes on that Uh, we thought a little bit more, we gave it a little bit more thought, and I think it went much more smoothly when we did return. It was balanced. Sometimes, and you see on your screen the phrase, sometimes both ways at once. Sometimes we have to fight on two fronts. Sometimes we have to take action, realizing that there will be another problem that is created by the action that we're taking. Okay? Okay? It is unique to the situation. The people who know their God will take action that is unique to the particular problem that they are going to be encountering. Why do I say that? We don't know specifically what the grounds will be, the nature will be of the next action taken against the church. We have ideas, and we may well be proven correct, but we need to be specifically fitted and suited to the specific problem that emerges. The church, and this is probably the most important aspect, the title of the movie, The Essential Church. We fought for the church to be considered essential. The government was closing down everything but what they thought was essential. My wife and I were talking about the fact that at one point in time, the Supreme Court was allowing a casino to continue operating at 50% while they were telling the churches in that particular state no more than 25% occupancy. We fought for the church to be considered essential, hence the title. The main thing we have to do at this particular point in time, if you ask me what is it that we're going to learn, what is it we're going to do at this point in time, the essential church is going to be continue being the church. Nothing new. We are going back to what the Scripture has called us to be. We are the ecclesia, the called out ones. You're familiar with that? If you've been at the 
a solid Bible-believing church for any particular period of time. We are called out of sin. We are called into the dominion and under the lordship of Christ. We call to repentance and saving faith in Jesus Christ. You see this, Acts 17, 30 through 34. The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. It proclaims the whole counsel of God. It provides an opportunity to serve. It proclaims a God-centered worldview, and it confronts worldviews that are not. One of the greatest aspects of what took place during COVID was you had a conflict of two worldviews. One worldview that was existentialist, man-centered, no view of eternity, no view of immortality. And as a result of that, much of what they did made sense. The church holds to a worldview that is God-centered, subject to God's sovereignty, and it holds to the immortality of man. It doesn't matter, ultimately, if I die of COVID, because immediately I'm in the presence of Christ, right? So you had a conflict of worldviews. We proclaim the biblical worldview. We proclaim God's moral law. We equip the saints for the work of ministry. We provide stability from the winds of false doctrine. It defines government's purposes. We see that clearly in Scripture. We talked about that. It confronts the government as needed. Our pastor, uh, not too long ago, confronted publicly uh, the governor of our state for his support of abortions. This has always been the prophetic role that the church carries out, and we will continue. The people of God are willing to defy, confront, or restrain a perverted, corrupt, or ungodly government as God sovereignly allows. We did that through the form of litigation. God in his sovereignty allowed us to prevail. If necessary, we may engage in litigation again. Uh, it also is possible for the church, through the exercise by people, by Christian people, of their divinely allowed rights, we may influence government by individuals running for office, by individuals serving in the government. However, at the same time that that is true, we also realize that it may be necessary for the church to be the church by obeying God rather than man, and in so doing have to be willing to step out of the normal life and into the wilderness. Put another way, we go underground. Grace Church went into what I would refer to as a quasi-underground operation. We were meeting illegally. We were open and in plain sight. Uh, James Coates' church was doing the same thing. Tim Stevens was as well. Uh, there were a number of other churches that are not referred to in the movie that were doing the same thing. This is around the world at the same time. Now, it may also be necessary at some point to go fully underground. Fully underground. One of the lessons of COVID should be this. Pastors, elders need to realize that at some point in the future, for their churches, this may be necessary. When it happens, how smoothly can we do it? Okay, Where would we meet? How would we implement it? 
They are willing to guard against infiltration and betrayal. One underground church had a situation where one of its elders uh, was betraying, and this is a number of years back under Idi Amin, uh, informing Idi Amin of what the church was doing. When it came to light to the other elders, one of the men said to the pastor, he says, Pastor, there is nothing we can do. There will always be a Judas in every community. The church has to guard against that. The church has to be willing to recognize repentance with the spirit of grace, recognizing options were possible. We remain uncompromising on fundamental issues. We are willing to endure. We love Christ supremely more than status, physical comfort, or even family. One man was a pastor, one of the greatest leaders of the underground church. Uh, they were attending a, serve, a meeting that the government of Romania had called. They were trying to pervert, subvert uh, all of the churches. Man after man spoke at the microphone, allowing it to happen. A man and his wife were there. Sabina Wormbrand says to her husband, they're spitting on the face of Christ. When you get a chance, don't let that happen. He looks at her, he says, they will put me in jail if I do. She says, I don't need a husband for a coward. Richard Vermbrand spent something like 14 years in prison because of his faithfulness. He is recognized in history as one of the great leaders of the underground church. We value Christ more than we value even our family. In Korea, when they were going through a time of persecution like this, history tells us that the Korean women would pray that their husbands would remain faithful, not necessarily that they would be released. We are convinced of the truth, and this is uh, Packer's book. You'll see this. He borrows a line from uh, J.I. Packer borrows a line from Oswald Chambers, Convinced of the truth, and we can do nothing against the truth, they have a certain, and I love this phrase, cheerful disdain for the anticipated results of their actions. This is the line, they smilingly washed their hands of the consequences. We washed our hands of the consequences, trusting them to the sovereignty of God. What are we going to do if it happens next time, another time? <laughs> The church will be the church. Nothing new, nothing out of the ordinary. We have been reminded of this potential problem. To, many, to a great degree, we've gotten careless, uh, comfortable, way too comfortable, and we needed to be reminded of who we are. The church will be the church. Again, taking you back to that verse in Daniel 11.32, by smooth words he will turn to godlessness, those who act wickedly toward the covenant. You see the five parts emerging, but the people who know their God will display strength and we will take action. This is guidance for the future. Do we need to excel still more? <laughs>